we know that God has revealed in Scripture that he is the God of all nations and that his intention is to build and establish his church among those nations, that men and women who love Christ might come to glorify him in their lives and spend eternity with him. When we talk about the church, uh, we recognize the Greek word for the church is ekklesia. Uh, this comes from the root word kaleo, uh, which means calling. And so the prefix ek to ekklesia tells us that uh, the identity of the church in Scripture is those of us who have been called out of the world. We've been called out of the world. That's what ekklesia means. And this is a wonderful identity for the church. What it means is that we are no longer those who identify with the world. We are no longer those who live our lives according to the principles and values of the world. We are a people set apart for God. And this is the definition, really, of the word holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified for the purpose of glorifying and worshiping God. And so God has a particular purpose for his church. But we also know, the Apostle Paul tells us, that we are to be in the world, yet not of it. And so we live with this tension, don't we? We live on this planet. We're limited by time and space. We are, uh, depending on where we're born, our citizenship resides within a nation, within a certain piece of geography. And so we go to work in the world. We study in the world. We shop in the world. We buy our gas in the world. And yet we're to be those who are called out, set apart from the world. Do you feel that tension every day? I do. And so it's important for us to understand what is God's purpose for his called out ones. Sometimes the church can have the mindset, the world is so evil. My primary interest is escaping from, separating from, avoiding, and being apart from the world in any kind of relational Context. And in so doing, uh, in very subtle ways, we begin to take advantage of the privileges and, and the grace that is ours as we're doing this morning to gather. And yet, tomorrow, we'll go back into the world, and Tuesday and Wednesday and so forth. But sometimes that gathering can create for us a very limited perspective or focus that causes us even to neglect our responsibility to the world and those that God has established us to live our lives before and among. And so I want to wrestle with that tension this morning and maybe help us each think in terms of how can we be faithful? Yes, to be those who are called out, set apart unto God, but also be faithful when we are living our lives in the midst of the world so that we can be used of God for his purpose and his glory. When we talk about the church... um, particularly when we're talking to pastors, and we try to define in terms, what is the responsibility of the church? And we often use words that start with the letter E. You'll recognize these words. Uh, we're, we gather together, and we're called as leaders to edify God's people, right? What does edify mean? Does anybody know the meaning of the word edify? Yeah, to build up, to strengthen, right? You certainly come to church, don't you, to be edified, to be built up. Is that just for your own personal benefit? No. The building up is so that you can be useful as you enter in or live among the world. The second word that we often talk about in the context of of ministry, it starts with E, is the word equip. Equip. And this has kind of a finer point on it, and this is 
focus on uh, the practical ministry of the church to teach and to train, not just to generally encourage and to build up, but to specifically train you in biblical truth and its application to every area of life. That's why it's great to hear Matt talk about the ministry of biblical counseling, which does just that. And there are other ways and areas that we can be trained up and equipped to live our lives for the Lord. But sometimes we can become consumers as members of the church on these first two uh, principles of edification and equipping. We can begin to kind of think in terms of this is all just for my benefit, for my own personal benefit. And I grow spiritually in really what could be termed sometimes like a hot house environment of the church. And we drink deeply and we take in more and more and we read more and more. But there's a third aspect of ministry that we need to be mindful of that is the responsibility of the church. And that is uh, the word that starts with the evangelize, right? We're to be a means, not an end, but we're to be a means by way of God reaching others so that they too can then what? Be edified and equipped and then to go out and to evangelize. It's this cycle, this process. As we gather together to be equipped and edified, then we are sent back into the world. We evangelize, tell people the good news about Christ, rescue them from their idolatry, and bring them back into a context of fellowship where they can again be what? Built up, trained, and sent out. And I I mention it this way because sometimes uh, I really do believe we fall into this false dichotomy. We begin to think in terms of uh, the church and its ministry is all for believers, And I know I've spent most of my life in full-time ministry, and I know what happens is you can live your life in that regard and realize you you know very few unbelievers the longer you are a believer. And you spend more of your time with believers than engaging unbelievers. And then over a pattern and a period of time, you don't even think any longer about engaging unbelievers. And so I do want to challenge you in your own heart and mind this morning as to this idea of are you being faithful to not just be edified or equipped, but to participate in the work of evangelization and reaching out. We want to be faithful to all aspects of ministry. And in a church particularly that is so committed to the edification and equipping, I'm very thankful that Grace Church is as committed to sending us back into the world that we might fulfill this third aspect of evangelization. Our church is growing. It's exciting. It's growing not only because people are transferring from other churches who haven't been open during COVID, but people are getting saved. We met as elders this morning, and we're just rejoicing in some of the testimonies this week of people coming to faith in Christ during these present days. And almost always, it's uh, the experience that someone in this church shared with a coworker, a friend, somebody in their neighborhood— and brought them into a Bible study or shared the gospel with them or brought them to faith in Christ. And so I'm grateful that this is a church that models all three of those aspects of ministry. Uh, I'm grateful that that commitment to evangelization, uh, and not just that, but all three aspects of ministry, is being replicated internationally uh, with all these missionary families that I referenced earlier this morning. So let's take a more careful look at God's purpose for the church in the world I want to read a quote by Patrick Johnston, who answered this question, how can a local church become missions 
and evangelism-minded. He says, first of all, there's no perfect model. The local church is pivotal to the whole mission enterprise, and it should be the seedbed for missions. How far we have fallen short of this ideal. How can churches regain their rightful place as fundamental to world evangelization? It's only as the local church sees its reason for existing as mission. Whether it's local, national, trans-ethnic, or international, can it really be a truly biblical church? And here Johnson is making that admission that a healthy church, a truly biblical church, is committed to all aspects of ministry, and not just from the leadership, but the people in the pews. They're benefiting from the edification and equipping, but they have a real desire to pass on what they've learned to those who don't yet know Christ as their Savior and to see them brought to maturity in faith. Another theologian by the name of Russell Pliny asks uh, the question, what is the mission of the church? He answers it this way. He says, since the mission of God is his glorification, all that he does is related to that goal. Thus, the aim of the church is first to glorify God. Second, we are called upon to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And third, we are called to make disciples of the converts by baptizing them and teaching them through both word and deed the doctrinal truth of the word of God. When we talk about edifying or equipping or evangelizing, what we're really talking about is the Great Commission. Now, a lot of times, even though I'm emphasizing evangelism this morning, when we think about missions, uh, we typically think about making converts. But what is the Great Commission? Right? There's a, it's not just making a convert, but baptizing them. And what is baptism? It's the public profession that I have died to my former way of life, and I'm being raised in newness of life in uh, obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that public profession is saying to the church at large, I'm now accountable to you. That means you can speak into my life if you see there's areas of my life that don't measure up with my profession of faith. I'm inviting you to speak into my life. But also baptism on the part of that new believer is saying to the body of Christ, I'm making a commitment to you. Now I do expect you to hold me accountable and speak into my life, but now I, as a member of the body, have that same duty and obligation to you. And the most loving thing we can do is help each other grow in our knowledge and faith and obedience to Christ. And so the Great Commission, yes, is making converts, but then it's the practice of baptism that is that public profession, and then leads to what? The faithful teaching them, not just head knowledge, but what? To observe, to practice all that I have commanded you. And so this is a picture, really, of the equipping, edifying, and evangelizing ministry of the church in the Great Commission. There's a lot of great evangelistic work being done today. But sadly, when you look at missions, as as I evaluate it, very few people are committed to the church itself. They're making converts, but they're not bringing them into sound biblical churches. That means those new converts, they may be claimed as numbers, and that can be applauded, and, and look how God's using us in ministry. But it's actually a very dangerous thing because those new converts are very vulnerable to false teaching, to error, to confusion, to not understanding uh, how they can live in obedient uh, faith to uh, uh, walk with Christ. And so they need to be brought into the context of a sound biblical church so they can mature and then reproduce themselves 
uh, through the teaching of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan. It's been his plan since he picked 12 men and poured his life into them. And it's been being reproduced for over 2,000 years. What we don't want to do is be guilty, any of us, of failing to any aspect of the Great Commission. We don't want to just be those who are focused on the teaching part and not the evangelism part. And we don't want to be those who are just committed to the evangelism part and not the teaching and calling to obedience part. Does that make sense? But we fall into that trap, don't we? At least I do. And so we need a better, we need a richer picture of what the purpose of the church is. Now, John Piper helps us here. Many of you have read his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and he made a famous, almost infamous statement. And I want to read it to you because this helps us to understand the big picture, the big idea of what is being accomplished in the Great Commission and the work of missions. Piper writes this. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. What's Piper getting at? Well, this this statement is really helpful to us. He says, worship is ultimate, not missions, because what? God is ultimate, not man. This is important, okay? Because when we think about the work of edification and equipping and evangelism, and we think about the Great Commission, it's very easy for us to think in terms that all of this is just for our own personal benefit. Now, are there benefits to us personally? You bet. Amazing benefits to us. Amazing benefits to us. But God's purposes in salvation and even in sanctification by way of ultimate purposes are for his glory and his honor, not just for our sake. So we have to reframe our whole thinking about the church, and we have to reframe our whole thinking about even the Great Commission to understand it's ultimately for his glory. And that's why we want to participate in this endeavor. We want to grow in holiness. We want to be faithful to engage others with the gospel so that they can be set free from their idolatry, brought into fellowship, not just with us, but with God, that they might also worship and glorify him. That's what is at stake. And so we need to keep in mind, again, this idea that God is ultimate, not man. Therefore, worship is ultimate not missions. But as our own pastor has said so many times to us, he says the one thing that we can do better here than we can do in heaven, because it won't be necessary, is the work of evangelism. It's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Our days are limited. Time is running out. We appreciate that more today than probably at ever any point in our lives. So how are we spending our time? Are we just consumers of Christianity, kind of taking it all in, kind of hoarding it in a a spiritual hothouse? Are we thinking in terms of how do we fulfill that cycle of looking to those who need to hear the gospel, bringing them into fellowship, being equipped, and going out with us and seeing that reproducing work accomplished with the great aim of not just saving people from hell, but saving people to a worshiping relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
Look with me to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a familiar text, but I want to read it in its context and then just make some observations. Let's begin in verse 4. He says, "...and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood." to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and it became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Verse 9. This is our primary text. But you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, do what? Glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the, the entire letter of 1 Peter, of course, is written to a church that has been scattered abroad, who is facing persecution. There's a theme of suffering in this, but really, it's not just suffering, and it's not just Peter's encouragement to them that they endure suffering. He's saying, you are suffering because you are living your lives out in such a way that are advancing the gospel. All throughout this book, he references the work of salvation. Look in chapter 1. And if you were to read beginning in verse 3 all the way down to verse 12, you begin to see the unpacking of the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the demonstration of his great mercy, he says in verse 3, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He goes on to talk about rejoicing in this, in the midst of our suffering. He goes on in verse 9, speaking of obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicted the followings of Christ and the glories to follow. And how it was revealed to them, they understood the gospel message. You skip over chapter 2 where we're at, you look at chapter 3, and you begin to see in verse 18... The same reference, for Christ also died for sins, what's for all? The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He continues on in chapter 4, speaking of this redeeming work of God that has rescued us from a life of the Gentiles and and, and unbelievers and how we lived according to the ways of the world. Verse 3, 
And he goes on to say then in verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And then look what he says a few verses later, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter gives testimony to in his epistle, yes, he's speaking to a church who's facing persecution, but he's saying, you are people who aren't defined by suffering. Okay? You're people who are defined by the perfecting and completing, saving work of Jesus Christ. And the end of that, yes, provides for you a future and eternity, an escape, yes, from the suffering, but much more than that. As you live your lives in this broken, hostile, fallen, persecuting world, you actually will bring glory to God. And so we understand the first principle here in the, in the book of 1 Peter is that the church is called to worship. And I want you to see it more carefully. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Let's stop there. There is so much packed in this first part of the verse And it's very complementary to what our pastor is preaching through right now in Ephesians chapter 1, where we've learned a lot, haven't we, about the doctrine of predestination and election and God's sovereignty and all that he's doing on our behalf. The work of adoption, John alluded to two weeks ago, calling us into a familial, personal relationship with our Father. All of that is summarized by Peter in the first part of this verse. He says, you are a chosen race. That's the doctrine of election. We're chosen by God. We are people defined by being chosen. He goes on to say that we are also a royal priesthood. What's the work and responsibility of a priest? It's to be a reconciler, a a mediator between God and man. This is the work of saints in the ministry of evangelism and and the work of reconciliation. He goes on to say we are a holy nation. We can't fulfill our calling as chosen people or as priests bearing witness to God unless we are holy people. We are sanctified people. This is the doctrine of sanctification. If we're going to claim the name of God, we have to represent him by way of observing all that he has commanded us, obeying the scriptures. And then lastly, is this reference to this wonderful doctrine of adoption, a people for God's own possession. This is what God intends to do. And and the phrase there, a people for God's own possession, is used many times in the scripture, going back to the Old Testament, and it is a reference to uh, someone who is given the the rights of a natural-born child or an heir. It is actually uh, the ceremony or the process of adoption in the ancient world. We may not like the the word possession. It might have wrong connotations for us. But for somebody who was formerly a slave, owned as a piece of property, and now has had 
a change of relationship being considered a child with the equal rights of a birth child. You're glad to be possessed, if you will, or identified or a member of that family. And so here Peter is saying, this is who we are as a church. We're chosen. We're priests. We are a sanctified people. And we are in a personal family relationship with God. What a tremendous privilege and calling to be a saint. We know that these references are to the church. That's who Paul's writing to here. But he's writing to those who are called out, who are believers, who have experienced the saving work of Christ. And the effect of that salvation is that they are worshipers. Go back to verse 5. This is what he says in the immediate context. Is you, again speaking to the church, are living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why? What's the purpose? To be comfortable, to be secure, to live a a safe and convenient life, to consume this upon yourself? No. But it's to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are pleasing or acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of worship. It's bringing everything into alignment. And of course, uh, the illusion here of Christ as cornerstone is important. Christ is the perfect manifestation of God in all of his character and his love and his devotion to man. Okay? Christ is perfect. We are in the process of being perfected. Amen? And what Peter's using as an example is he says Christ is the cornerstone. And the role of a cornerstone is to be perfectly uh, aligned. And then the next stone laid up against it is in perfect alignment. And the next stone laid up against that is in perfect alignment. And what he's saying is we build our lives on Christ and the example of Christ to live a holy life. And if we do that and follow his examples, matter of fact, uh, Peter says this uh, later in chapter 2, look at verse 20. One, he says, but you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving the example for you to what? Follow in his steps. This is aligning your life with the cornerstone of Christ. But as we align our lives, what's the end effect of all this? We're building a temple unto God. This is a reference to a life spent that is facilitating the worship and glory of God. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So Peter's saying, this is who you are, and this is what God wants to accomplish through you. It's the same thing he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he talks about uh, transforming our minds and being renewed, and that we might become living sacrifices who are wholly acceptable unto God. Our very lives are sacrifices for the praise and glory and honor of his name. Well, with this being in mind, let's look at the second purpose in this verse quickly. He goes on to say, if this is who you are and you're aligning your life with Christ and you have as your aim bringing glory and honor to him, if you are committed to this, if this is the reality of who you are, then there's a purpose for your life. 
Let's read verse 9 again. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Here's the purpose. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the purpose? It's point two here from the text. The church is called not only to worship, the church is called to witness. Should we just huddle together for our own personal benefit? No. As we go back into the world, we are to live our lives in such a way that we proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, I want you to think about this. The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed. Amen? Now, I grew up in an era where what became very popular in evangelism was friendship evangelism. And I'm all for making friends and evangelizing them. Okay? But what that really came to be in practice was more as you just hang out with people and hope they pick up from your example that you know God. And you're hoping at some point that they'll come and ask you about God. Well, I hope that that is true. We should live lives that beg people to ask that question. You live radically different. What I see in your life is, is different. But at some point, you've got to tell them. Okay? And I love this text because it emphasizes both aspects of how to be a witness. The first is to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness. Now, he goes on to unpack this. Read verse 10 with me. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's speaking to us as believers. And here's what he compels them to do. He says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And here's this idea again of being called out. Okay, this is not our home. We are now citizens of heaven. We're pilgrims here on earth, Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 1. So we are aliens and strangers with regard to the world and its ways, but we still travel through. We still are present in their midst, okay? And as we live in the context of the world, we're to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, right? Don't give in to the flesh. Don't live according to the principles and the values and aims of this world. Live according to uh, the call of God to to live a holy and set-apart life, yes. Now, here's the practical part. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. For the sake of time, let me just focus in on this one phrase. He says, as you're you're living as as aliens and, and pilgrims in the context of the world, Surrounded by unbelievers, okay? They're going to attack you. They're going to slander you. They're going to criticize you. But there's something that's going to stop them in their tracks. It's your proclamation of the gospel, but also your life that you live out the gospel, meaning that you live a life that's consistent with the person of Christ. So they cannot accuse you of hypocrisy. They cannot find excuse in your life to invalidate the proclamation of the message. And so he says here, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, come to glorify God. I mean, come to know God and to worship him and to glorify him as you do. So, it's both, friends. 
We need to live lives, yes, before the world that are set apart, that do beg the world to ask the question, why are you different? And who's the God that you worship and serve? Because he's certainly different than the one I worship and serve. Okay? And you get to tell him about this glorious God who's a God, yes, of holiness and justice, but also mercy and compassion and forgiveness and love. And you can even look at your life and say, yeah, my life is different. I'm trying to live like Christ because of my love for him. But I know I'm not perfect like he is. So don't just look to me. I want to point you to him. And you too can claim the promise of not only salvation, but this promise of of being made complete, of being sanctified, so that you might know him, love him, and worship him. This is the purpose of the church in the world. That we might, yes, be worshipers, but we also might be witnesses unto him. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, but I want to just leave you with this, this one thought. You might hear a sermon like this and walk away and just feel guilty. And I've spent a lot of my life experiencing guilt when it comes to evangelism. I don't want you to think in those terms. That's not the right way to think about this duty and responsibility of reaching the lost. Recently, I've been doing quite a bit of reading. There's a book I'd like to recommend to you. This one's entitled Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Okay. This will reframe and refocus your thinking about the Christian life in the context of personal relationship with God himself. I said earlier, it's not just what we're saved from, it's what we're saved to. And let me remind you what we're saved Two, because this should be the motivation in our ministry of evangelism. And let me begin by asking this question. What was the motivation of God himself in providing salvation for us? What does John 3.16 say to us? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. What was God's motivation? In extending salvation, it was a love for us. We who were enemies, we who were lost, we were who were separated from him. And as I think about evangelism, duty only gets you so far. Guilt gets you even less far. But I'm convinced in the study of Scripture that when we begin to love like God, and we see the opportunity that God's extending to man to be loved. That when we think about those in our lives who are lost and separate from that amazing love, it should compel us to invite others to know him and to experience it. God's love in extending salvation should become our love in extending the gospel message to others. What Reeves points out in this book that I think is helpful to us is he paints a picture of God in relationship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he speaks about what theologians refer to as the inner Trinitarian love of God. And he reminds us that God is not deficient in any way. God doesn't save us because he's deficient of worship, that he needs something from us. It's just the opposite. He saves us because he wants us to experience what we were created to experience in Loving fellowship with him. 
It was the fall that turned that upside down. We became lovers of self instead of lovers of God. And so God who dwells in perfect love in relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is not deficient. He's complete. Matter of fact, he overflows in love. And it says in love, the scriptures tell us, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. As you study the scriptures, you discover that Christ then gave his life. What was his motivation towards us? Greater love hath no man than he would lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5.8 tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What was Christ's motivation in providing salvation? Love for us. And it's an invitation into that loving relationship, the fellowship that we were created to experience that was broken by the fall that can be restored by the gospel itself. It's not just saving people from hell, it's saving them to a loving, intimate, personal relationship with the Godhead, extended to us through the second member of the Trinity, his work on the cross. We need to become more like Christ and following in his footsteps and be motivated out of what? A love for the lost and an invitation to rest in and to experience the complete love of God for them. Well, I wish we could look closer at this in Scripture because it's a rich, rich theme that undergirds the entire evangelism, gospel ministry. But let's close by looking at one text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I take us back here because this is also a text our pastor referenced recently. So as you listen to him, I want you to have these things in your heart and mind. Let's read this and then we'll close. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does Paul write in verse 14? It's the love of Christ that controls or constrains us. And that needs to be our motivation when we think in terms of responsibilities, certainly to worship, but also to witness. Pray with me as we close. Father, In these brief moments in looking at your word, we're reminded that we are not to be consumers or selfish with regard to all the spiritual blessings that have been poured out upon us, but that we are to be priests, we are to be reconcilers, we are to be ambassadors who live our lives in such a way that we do declare your excellencies. We put you on display and we're prepared to give a defense of our faith 
that others might come to know your amazing love and to experience the fullness of it for not only now, but for all eternity. I pray that you would stir up our hearts in this effort to be motivated in the same fashion in which you were motivated and that you would grant us a love for the lost that would lead us to live before them, to pursue them, to proclaim to them this wonderful, wonderful message. And in the end, that you might receive the praise and worship that you alone deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.